Good morning. You know, we've had a busy weekend, and it was really great. A lot of great stuff going on. Um, but this morning, I thought I would begin our series, and I would set up the whole day with an experience that I had yesterday that really taught me quite a bit. And I feel like we always have to be learning, but it kind of taught me, even at a, at a real level, more of what John was trying to say in, in these teachings to us. And so, if it's okay, I want to share with you. So, yesterday, uh, the big, big bulk of my day began by going to be with Lynn Taylor and his family uh, as they were celebrating his dad's life as he's passed the funeral proceedings and honoring Bob. And as I got there, one of the things that was so amazing was just to see Lynn's family, which is huge, just kind of rally around one another. I got to talk with Lynn and his brothers, and Lynn said that they had a sweet time as a family last night. It was just great for them to grieve and to laugh together, and it was really rich. And he went on and said, you know, a lot of people ask, what's going, to be on my, what's going to be on your tombstone? See, my daddy doesn't have a tombstone. His tombstone is this. And he pointed to all his family. And I was like, gosh, man, how rich is that? Like, how amazing for your kids to look at your life and say that about you. I mean, who wouldn't want that? You know, that's just a, amazing. And so he, Bob infected a lot of people and had left a legacy, not only in his family, but across the globe. And so I ask you to continue to pray for Lynn and his family as they grieve and they mourn and they go through the next steps moving forward. It really got me thinking, though, as I was driving away from First Baptist, and I was driving back to here because we had pull up and pick up, and I was on Lebanon Road, and I was thinking about uh, a, a year ago, I was leaving my funeral for my grandmother, who was really close to me, played a big part in my life. And as we left the funeral home to head to her graveside, we had a funeral processional. And one of the most memorable things of that funeral processional was that as we were mourning and grieving, the entire community where we were stopped. It just paused. And I noticed it. All my family, down to my kids and my extended family, noticed this man who was up on a hill. He's cutting his grass in a lawnmower, and he just stopped as well. He paused on his lawnmower and he took his hat off as I drove by. And it was so endearing, it was so respectful for what we were going through. And it meant so much and it's forever etched in our minds and it meant the world. And so I was thinking about that. I was, I was driving away from being with my friend Lynn and I asked you to pray for him as I'm praying for him. And I was thinking on that with my own grandmother. And I'm stopped at the light at McGavick and I hear these sirens go off. And so what do you do? You, you immediately look up and try to find where they're coming from. And I'm in the center lane. The turning lane's here onto McGavick towards Kroger, and then there's the right lane. And I look up, and I see the siren coming over the hill towards town from out here in the east, from Lebanon. And it's a funeral processional. And I thought, oh, wow, this is it's amazing. So I immediately stop. I pause. And they're coming through the light. It's and I put on my flashers and I sit and I say a small word of prayer for this family, whoever they are and whatever they're going through and how they're grieving and how they're mourning. I'm praying for whoever's passed. But that prayer got disrupted by horns going off and people whizzing by me from the right lane and people from this lane uh, that were making a right on the left and taking off and people like swerving around my car and waving that I was number one, yelling how much they were a big fan of me moment and they had somewhere to be and I was a roadblock to them and 
all I could think in that moment as I was praying for this grieving family was like, where do you have to be? Like, I have somewhere I need to be that you can't pause for a moment. We'll miss this light, but we'll catch the next one. You know, that we could show a little respect, you know, just love in the, in the smallest of ways, like just to do what I thought was common knowledge, like just do the right thing, you know? I, I didn't know, I wasn't sure. I even came here afterwards because I was like, I thought this was common knowledge. I found uh, Kendall Fitzsimmons and Lila Matthews. I said, hey, you guys have been driving for a little while now. I said, um, what do you do at a funeral procession? They're like, you know, you stop and you pull over. I was like, even the kids know. I mean, our teenagers know. And I was like, so we're just willingly choosing to be disrespectful. And we're willingly choosing to speed by an opportunity to love because our life is happening and it's far more important than other people who in that moment are hurting. And it got me thinking about what John is saying here. In 1 John 3, 1, he says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That we should be called I've, been, I've entitled today's sermon as we get into this series, Four Aspects of Love. The call to love is what we're looking at today. That we are called as his children to love like him. And when we do, that our love looks distinct in a world that doesn't know his love. It's limited, it's darkened, and it delivers from that very world. And it will beckon in you responses, actions, deeds, manifest from your heart Things that you will do that will look like him because your heart now belongs to Jesus. And see, John had a real conviction about this matter. And he's writing to inspire other believers through his epistles. Why? Because he once knew a different name than the apostle of love, which is what he wore when they buried him. From a deep sense of gratitude and a place of reality... John, the one brother of a son of Zebedee, he and his brother James were known as the sons of thunder when they were called to be disciples of Jesus. He would die having been the youngest disciple to follow Jesus. He would die having been boiled alive in Rome and surviving it, only to die an old man penning this letter later. And he would die known as the apostle of love, the most endearing, the most compassionate, most tender of all the disciples to follow Jesus. But he started Son of Thunder. But that's not where he ended. Everything changed in his life because of Jesus. And so he writes five verses for us that we're going to look at today from 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 10. I mean, sorry, 1 John 3, verses 10 through 15. And I, I'm going to read them for you. He says, this is how we know the children of, who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one, murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. 
Anyone who hates his brother and sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing within them. So what I want to do is I want to break down these five verses for us. I want to look at them in increments and just kind of like unpack what John might be trying to say to us. So in verse 10 it says, this is how we know who the children of God are, who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. For this message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. I want to take a moment to, before I give you the first point, and look at that, that phrase he uses, whoever does not do what is right. Now, this is an opportunity for legalism to birth itself in our minds and hearts. This is a place where we have heard it preached. I have heard it preached. Maybe I'm alone. But I've heard forever checks and balances preached that we can do a certain thing and not do a certain thing, and therefore we are righteous. And let me just be clear. That is not what John is talking about. John has moved from son of thunder, thin-skinned, bristly, fight at the drop of a hat to someone who would stop and pause because a funeral processional is happening. He has moved from being the guy that if you talk about his mama, he's taken you out to the person who will be there at your bedside and has the greatest bedside manner as your mama is passing. Do you hear what I'm saying? There's been this dramatic change in who he is. And he says, out of my heart, I cannot help but do the actions that are motivated by a heart that belongs to Jesus. I have to do what Jesus would do in this moment. That's what he means by doing what is right. It's not show up at church X amount of times and check it off or show up in, in whatever religious fashion that we've been taught, that we've made robotic. He says, if your heart is his and it is changing, then you will not be able to stop yourself from doing what is right. And you will love your brothers and sisters out of that heart's conviction, out of that motivation in your heart and headspace. That's what's going to happen. He said, if you're his. And you know what's interesting about this verse that I want to point out that I think is really important and only further makes my point. He says, anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. But preceded by that verse, he said, we know who the children of God are. We also know who the children of the devil are. You know what he doesn't do in the next portion? He doesn't unpack what the children of the devil do. Why? Can I just say, because he doesn't need to. He, why would I state the obvious? You know, you're selfish. You know you. There's no one in here who loves you more than you do. Other than Jesus. Hello? He's like, so why would I overstate the obvious? I don't need to show you what the children of the devil look like. They're selfish. They think about themselves only. They're going to act in their flesh. That's how they are. And I don't need to unpack that. I don't need to show you that in Scripture. It's without statement. It's obvious, is it not? Let me ask you a question. How many of you remember who you were before Jesus? And how many of you are grateful? There's a big difference today. He goes, I don't need to overstate the obvious. The truth is love distinguishes. And that's the first point. It looks different than a world that is fighting for itself. It seeks to focus on the difference between what is right, and listen to this very closely, and simply fighting to be right. Right? 
It focuses more on what is right instead of just being consumed by the fight to be right. John says, if you claim to be a child of God, yet your commitment to God isn't manifest by your love for the people around you, by one another. Now, this is John. He says, then it isn't real. Oh, that's a sting. Okay, I I need us to listen, though. He says, if you claim to be a child of God, just check your claim. Is that substantiated or is it not? You, how do you love others? How does that come out of you? What do you do when a funeral processional comes? How do you let a man on a mower impact you? When he stops and shows you respect, do you pay that forward? Does that motivate you to see who might be watching you as you respond when everyone else has somewhere to be? Does it change you? And so the question becomes, like, if you claim to be a child of God... Is that evident in the way you respond to the world? And if that claim is substantiated, but yet you still respond more like the selfish way you used to, more like that son of thunder than that apostle of love, then maybe you have opportunity for growth and you need to listen up to those checks in the spirit or in the mind space that God keeps giving you to stop being selfish and start sacrificing. Start living a life that is selfless because that's how you came to life in Jesus. He gave his life for you. And you are called, second grace commitment, to love others like he would. That means you are called to love by giving your life for them. That means giving your agenda, your time, your effort. It's about him and every opportunity to worship him in a moment with other people. John is so impassioned by this. Because he's saying, when you walk around, and he knew this well, demanding respect, defending yourself, you do one thing. You decimate relationship with others. When you are your sole focus, and that's what you fight for, in the end, that's what you'll have, is you. And you're going to be lonely. He says, look, you, you have this grand opportunity To let the life of God, which you claim saved you, usher you into eternity. And a few weeks ago I said this, that the only thing we take with us is relationship. Take nothing else. So that faith that you say you have is based on a relationship to him, which was him sacrificing as an example for you and I of how to live with others. And if, if we will do that, as he has called us to, and we will just simply walk in gratitude for what he did for us by loving other people. We'll have relationship that we carry into eternity that looks like legacy amongst our family and our friends, much like Bob was honored for yesterday, and rightfully so. When your life is changed by Jesus, the Holy Spirit is indwelling you. Thus, it is going to continually convict you in your head and heart space. But when your life only shows fleshly action and selfish response, the Lord is going to come alongside because he loves you and he's going to correct you. If you're truly his, he's not going to continue, allow you to continue in the thought patterns of old or the selfish practices of old, the heart problems that used to exist. He's going to say, look, if, if you're truly mine, then my first command to you is that you'd love me with your all, that you'd give me everything. And then you'd love other people the way I asked you to love, that I loved you. So I, I'm asking you to love them the way I loved you. 
That's what it means to be mine. And John, having been radically saved, says the temptation will always exist for you to go back to Son of Thunder. It's always going to be there, daily present before you, to go back to the old way. But he says, but don't go back. Accept that new name. Accept the grace that comes by being called by Jesus, an apostle of love. Accept that grace and walk in newness of life and the freedom therein. And he does it by trying to explain to them through a story that they would know well. He brings up Cain and Abel. He says in Genesis 4, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. I got to tell you, yesterday I recognized that I was nobody. I was not making any friends as I sat there at that light. And uh, no one was my fan, even though I was number one. <laughs> but I want you to hear from Genesis 4. Sorry, I just was reading the next passages in 1 John, verses 12 and 13. I want to explain just the most important part of this entire passage and exchange between Cain and Abel and what God says in it. Too often we skip over what God says in this and we focus on the, the actions that come after. We don't focus on what God said and how gracious he was. God was gracious with Cain. And Cain, unfortunately, was more concerned with jealousy over his brother than he was convicted by the mercy shown him by God. So verse 4 of chapter 4, Genesis says, Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. Course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor upon Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was angry, his face was downcast. Verse 6 here's the important part. Then the Lord said to Cain, and when the Bible says, then the Lord says, every believer should listen up. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, then sin is crouching at the door and its desires for you. But you must rule over it. Look, John is reminding them, hey, your opportunity to go back to Son of Thunder, it's always there. It's going to be there tomorrow. Every opportunity, you could have kept your schedule and sped on too, but there is something bigger that I've done in you. And you've got to put that, that tendency on the cross again. You've got to put it to death. You have to respond the way that I would. And here's how I responded to Cain in a moment when we know for truth that something in the offering that Cain gave was withheld. It doesn't... He says I, he brought some, and it goes on to explain, explain, like in detail, what Abel brought. What we know is this, and it's simple. What's the first and greatest commandment? Love God with all. Abel brought all. He brought the first and the best and gave that to God. Somewhere, Cain in his heart or his offering withheld. And God said, look, if you just bring all, you're always going to be accepted by me. I'm always going to receive it. Just do better next time. Just do it, do it the way that you know to next time. You know what to do. I want your heart. I want all of you. So just bring me all of you. Don't bring me 
Or I'll say, hey, that 1%, we're working on it, but do better next time. Just do what you know to do right, and that is give me everything of you. I love you. Do you hear the grace in that? Can I ask you a question? How many of you have experienced that grace with God? How many of you have come to him a million times over to find him only graciously receive you and his mercy shower upon you one more time? Can I ask, can I just beckon the thought that maybe you and I identify more with Cain, the murderer in the story, than we do Abel? Maybe Abel is like less like us because he got it right the first time. How many of us get it right the first time? I'm grateful for the example of Cain. I'm grateful that John brings it up here and he goes, hey, I get it. I was transferring. I was like in transition from son of thunder to apostle of love. And that didn't happen overnight. And it took me coming to the altar a million times and going, hey, just do better next time. I love you. Receive my grace so that you can distribute grace to others. Like receive my arms. Don't be mad. I love you. It's all right. I cannot accept this because it isn't, listen, I can't accept what you brought today because it's not sincere. But you know what to do. So just come back and accept my love and receive it so that you can give it to someone else. But Cain instead, and we sang it a moment ago, that we're not defined by our failures. Cain could not get his eyes off of his offering that was rejected to look at the grace that God had offered him. How many of you are grateful that you are uh, not the sum of all your mistakes? Here, Cain has an opportunity to respond. I'm not the sum of all my mistakes. I messed up. But he said I can come. And he said that I can just do better next time. But instead, instead of responding like that, he goes to Son of Thunder, enraged that he'd been rejected, with the opportunity to fight for himself, defend himself, and to look for someone who would justify his thoughts. And he looks with anger at the one who was accepted. And he goes, why was I rejected? Why was he accepted? And enraged, he kills his brother. Now, I say we identify more with Cain than we do Abel. Maybe you've never murdered someone, but how many of you have responded like that in your heart? I can't believe I was denied one more time. What do they have? I'm not perfect, but look at them. What is it about them? Why am I suffering and they're not? Even within the own church. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. People who were being held down by the people in their own church, looking along the aisle, silently judging those who seem to be suffering less than you are. He goes, don't do that. And so, so he goes, do not, rec do not miss that sin is crouching at the door and you have to be responsible for it. I can't do anything with it. Your tendencies are going to bubble up and it's waiting for you to embrace it, but don't do that. Turn to me. Accept my grace. Don't respond the way that you naturally want to. You want to fight for your position. You want to fight against your rejection. You want to strike down the one who was accepted. Don't do it. Just look at what I'm offering you and that you're accepted by me and that I love you and let that change the way you respond to everything. Hello? 
I don't know if anyone here has ever had at one point in your life the, the opportunity to fight for yourself. Just once. And you felt this thing rise up within you. And you said some things that you regretted. Hurt some people that you really care about. Because you gave in to that sin crouching at the door. And maybe you didn't physically murder them. But you did damage to them and to that relationship. And you decimated an opportunity for the only thing you take with you. Anyone ever experienced that? You're in a broken world. <laughs> I can, let me just confess, I've done that time and time and time again, and I don't want to do it. And guess what? I'm likely to do it later today, and I'm likely to do it tomorrow. But every time, he goes, just do better next time. Come to me, receive the grace, let let what is right bubble up within you so that you'll fight for what is right instead of fighting to be right. That you'll sit there at the light because that guy on the motor sat there for you. And I don't know who was watching or who was listening. And I'm not saying that, like, listen, I'm not saying that doing what is right and sitting in a moment at a light because there's a funeral processional is the same as watching brothers and sisters on the other side of the globe be persecuted for their faith. Not even close. Here's what I'm trying to tell Americans in this room today. Just do the simple thing. Just do what's easy. And selfless. And you go, well, I always stop at a funeral procession. Great. Good. This should affirm you. What's next for you? What's the next selfless thing for you? What's that next step? Where can you allow him to increase more so that you decrease? Because I got to tell you, he goes on to unpack precisely what I experienced yesterday. Do not be surprised if the world hates you for loving like Jesus. <laughs> we know that we've passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. You know that no murderer can move for eternal life while that is residing within him. The second question is this. Second point. Love distinguishes and love delivers. I'm going to unpack this really quickly. Here it is. There's a key word here. It says remains. Too often we have this thought that we are like watching some cosmic tennis match between God and the devil. And we're trying to choose which team we're going to be on. Can I just be clear? If you're not on God's team, you're on a team. And it's not his. You're on the enemy's team. And the only thing that he teaches, the only thing that your fleshly desire knows is to fight for self. That's it. It's going to decimate relationship. It's going to end. It's going to make you lonely. And, and he wants to steal, kill, and destroy from you. He does not want good for you. He's trying to take from you. Now, on the flip, on the other side, this team, his team, the father said, you know what? There's no way that people, I mean, I designed them that they would be connected to other people. I designed them to be connected to me. So I'm going to send my son over. I'm going to have him sacrificially just like lay it all down and give up in a moment so that he can ultimately win this game, but lose this moment of battle on the cross because so, he's going to take them all upon himself. And in the end, he'll rise victorious. But he's bringing them all back over here if they'll just accept my grace. So they'll just receive it. 
They don't have to stay over there alone and separated, isolated, stolen from, deceived, killed, darkened, ununderstanding of why someone would stop and pay respect to people who are grieving because they have an agenda to keep. They just don't get that. They don't understand it. They hate that people would do that, and they don't understand. Listen, he uses the word remains because they are already dead. That's this team. You're not choosing it. You're already there. And if you want life, it's in Jesus alone and the sacrifice the Father gave of his only beloved Son that you might be traded, transferred from one side to the other, that you might be his and his alone. And if you claim to be his, he says, there's things that are come forth from your life because of a love and a heart that belongs to him, to Jesus. That when people on this side look at you, it might offer them hope that they can be saved too. It might deliver them from the mire as well. And I got to tell you, even though I knew Jesus as I was walk, driving in a procession with my grandmother, I knew Jesus. And I don't know if the guy on the mower knew Jesus. I just know that it had an impact on me forever. And it was simple. And I just wonder if the church is taking the simple opportunities to make impacts that may last an eternity in someone's life. I'm going to ask the band to come back. I'm going to make a statement. And um, then I'm going to ask us to look at something. In Matthew 7, probably one of Jesus' most important teachings, John was very aware of this. And so I'm going to mention it. He says, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. That seed that is good goes in, takes root, and the only thing that it produces, the only fruit that we see from it, is going to be good. That you can't, you can't make bad fruit come from what is truly good that comes from heaven. And you also can't make appear good what comes from that which is perishing, which is bad and it's, it's, not, it's not eternal, it's not good. Can I ask you this? If God has called you unto himself and he saved you for himself, and he's given you opportunities just like I get all the time, like just to pause for a processional. It's not simple. I mean, it's, not, it's nothing big. It's just simple. Are we taking those opportunities because we're concerned that they remain in death? Are you concerned that they're already dead? And he's left you and I here that they might have hope of life. That they don't have to dwell in darkness or drown in death that they could have hope of life because you and I exist if we'll just do the simple things what is right that thing that manifests out of our heart and moves our hands and feet to do certain things like deeds that would reflect his love this morning we've been called out of darkness into light and thus we've been called to love like Jesus sacrificially lifting other people's needs above our own instead of fighting for ourselves he already fought for us. He won. So you get to fight for others now. Our love should be so distinct that the world cannot help but take notice. My question this morning for us is, is it? Have you received the grace of God that offers you life in Jesus and the ability to love like him? 
And do you offer that same kind of grace to other people? This morning, I want to encourage you, if you're not in a life group, our life group's going to discuss this right here on a real practical level. I'm going to give you one of the things they're going to be discussing this week. It might, might encourage you to think about getting in a life group so you can talk through this with some people. I want to tell my life groups an apology because I, uh, when I write, you know, it's not always first draft, right? It goes through multiple renditions. I sent out our life group curriculum three weeks ago so that we'd be ready for this week in this discussion. And almost all of it's there, but it wasn't the final version. I don't know how the, like, second version got out, but the final version. So the final version's coming, okay? So just grace, please. But in it, there's a question. It says, if your life is measured by you, by others, by Jesus, on a scale from divisive to unifying, where would you rate yourself? Where would you rate yourself on the scale from divisive to unifying? I want you to think about what you do, how you talk, who you discuss things with, what you discuss. What would others say? Where would they rate you? Are those the same number? And all that really matters, the most important thing, is what would Jesus say of you on the issue of divisive to unifying? And are you willing, are you open to let him come in and have his way and move the meter far from divisive closer to unifying in you and I today? I think we need to. I think as a church, when he sacrificed his life that we could live, we can sacrifice the fight for ourselves to love like him. So Father, this morning I ask in this room, as we close our eyes, We contemplate that question. And we're led in song and in prayer. Will you come in and do surgery in our heart? Start recognizing the places where we have destroyed relationship with others. Will you come in and help us to realize the places where we were selfish and thus decimated relationship? Will you help us to realize the places where we just don't look like you, the place where we've abandoned your grace, we've stiff-armed your mercy, and we've not extended it to others. God, open our hearts to be receptive of your grace so that today we'll begin extending it to others. In Jesus' name, amen.